This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Bob Carpenter is our guest here on Play-By-Play Cast this week. He's the voice on television of the Washington Nationals. Thanks again for hitting download, subscribe, rating, or reviewing us, and telling a friend if you enjoy the podcast as well. This is Play-By-Play Cast. It's the podcast about Play-By-Play guys, for Play-By-Play guys, by a Play-By-Play guy. Bob Carpenter is an interesting guy in a lot of different ways. Uh, number one, he's, he's worked all over Major League Baseball. He has worked throughout college sports, has spent a long time, almost 20 years he spent with the worldwide leader. So uh, Bob's got a lot of interesting perspectives, has been a lot of places, and has seen a lot of things. And it's uh, going to be exciting to, to delve into a lot of that with him. But one of the other reasons that Bob is an interesting guy to have on this podcast is because he's a small businessman. The Bob Carpenter baseball scorebook is something that has been such a staple of minor league and major league broadcasters alike over, gosh now, I mean 30 years almost, maybe, that he's, that he's had this thing going. And Bob will detail the story of exactly how the Bob Carpenter baseball sto- uh, scorebook came into being, but truly out of necessity. You know, he was broadcasting and was using the old scorebook you get to coach your kids' little league team and play it against sports, and it was not, it was not conducive for professional broadcasting. So Bob went out and, and made something that worked for him, and that took off because... It works for a lot of us now, and uh, interesting to hear the perspective of, of how that all happened. Little anecdote personally on that. I got into broadcasting. I was not the kind of guy that grew up, you know, I grew up in New York, uh, well, in New Jersey, but listening to, to New York baseball or New York radio. I didn't grow up knowing I was going to be a broadcaster from age six or seven. It was something that for me really came around when I was late in high school, my junior and senior year of high school. This was something I wanted to explore, and then I went to college for it, developed a passion for it, and and everything took off. But it was not something that, you know, from an early age I knew and could study guys. And, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, especially people we have on this podcast, that talk about, you know, their love for listening to Vin Scully growing up as a kid in Los Angeles when they were 9 or 10 years old. I didn't necessarily have that growing up. Uh, I listened to WFAN, so I always listened to the Mets. So I heard Bob Murphy, uh, and and as I, you know, the years went on, I, Howie Rose and Gary Cohen, and I, Gary Cohen to this day is still one of my favorite broadcasters. But name recognition across the industry was not something that exactly was my my forte at that time because I never really had studied the industry and studied who was in it. I got into it late in high school because I thought it was fun. I thought uh, I could be good at it. And I thought it would be something to, to pursue. So my first job in minor league baseball, I was an intern after my sophomore year of college with the Salem Avalanche, now the Salem Red Sox. Jason Benetti was my boss. And I believe JB had a Bob Carpenter's um, baseball scorebook. If he didn't, there were several guys in the league that did. 
But I always remember looking at it and going, who is this Bob Carpenter guy that has developed this scorebook? And it never never really clicked that Bob was a Bob was a broadcaster that developed a scorebook. I just thought Bob Carpenter was the scorebook guy. I don't know, like Trump is the stakes guy. Uh, <laughs> I just I just thought he was the guy that you know, his name was on the scorebook because he produced them, and he did. But it never dawned on me uh, that Bob actually was not only in this industry but uh, fully excelling in this industry as well. Obviously, I became very quickly uh, acclimated with the facts on that matter. But that's just that's just what it was for me when I first saw the Bob Carpenter scorebook. I didn't realize who he was and um, what he was doing at that time. And that's so I mean, very quickly, I, I started to become more a student of the industry. So it's almost kind of embarrassing to say it now. But uh, I was excited to talk to Bob about uh, about the scorebook, <laughs> first and foremost, just because of that. that's the first way that I was introduced to who he was. And I guess that's the point. I think that a lot of us younger broadcasters get introduced to who Bob Carpenter is because of his scorebook. And we'll talk about it in the interview. You know, if he leaves a legacy as that, there are a lot worse things you can do in life and in this business. So, uh, interesting on that front as well. But we're getting into a whole bunch of different stuff with Bob. We'll talk about uh, preparation. We'll talk about college uh, basketball broadcasting. Uh, we'll certainly talk about uh, college. We'll certainly talk about baseball broadcasting and the Washington Nationals and such. But we do start with the scorebook, the Bob Carpenter baseball scorebook, and then quite exactly how it came to be. The infamous scorebook. Well, in 1984, I got my first big league job with the Cardinals. And uh, I was 31 years old, you know, making my major league debut. Badger Stadium, Los Angeles. I'm working with Mike Shannon. Jack Buck's going to come over for the middle three innings and join me. So obviously a big step in my career took place that day and that year. And uh, I'm scoring baseball games out of a softball scorebook that I bought at Buck Sporting Goods in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because I just didn't know of anything that was out there at that time that would help me as a broadcaster. So, you know, I did that for a couple of months and it wasn't working because it didn't have some of the things I was looking for. Uh, for example, a defensive grid where you could instantly look up and see where the, you know, the, you know, in a bang, bang play, sometimes you just need to look up and see, you know, who's, who's where. And, uh, you know, the old softball book didn't have that. Uh, Whitey Herzog, who was the Cardinals manager at that time, gave me a copy of a scorecard uh, you know, the actual lineup card uh, that they use in the dugout. And I did notice that uh, they had a box for extra men, left-handed, right-handed, and switch hitters. They had an extra box for each team for relief pitchers, lefties and righties. And so I started thinking how I could incorporate that into my scorebook because, like, it fits the seventh inning and there's a pinch hitting situation. I want to be able to look down and see that matchup immediately. You know, who's, if it's a right-handed batter, pinch hitting, who are, who are the right-handed pitchers available at that time? So, you know, the whole thing kind of developed from there. I sat down in a hotel room one night during that season uh, with a couple of eight-and-a-half by 11 sheets, which is the size of the broadcaster's book to this day, and uh, a, a pencil and a ruler, and kind of laid out a grid while glancing at that lineup card that Whitey had giving, given me. And, uh, you know, came up with a grid. I think the first one had 12 innings. I later expanded that to 13 innings. I think I found a little more room in the margin. And then uh, up to the current day now, that scorebook, you can get 15 innings in it. And I'll be darned if we didn't have three games last year that went beyond 15 innings. 
including an 18 inning game, which I had never done before. So anyway, uh, Joel, it just kind of, you know, it was out of necessity. I guess they say necessity is the mother of invention. Well, that's what happened to me. And so, um, you know, I came up with this grid, took it down to the local uh, Jiffy print place down the street. Uh, I, I think my schedule that year was 52 games. There, there weren't as many games on TV in the mid to early 80s as there are now. So uh, I had already probably done about 15 of those games. So I think I had him print me up a 50-game scorebook, uh, put a plastic cover on top of it and uh, some binding. And uh, I started using it, and I loved it. And uh, and then uh, as, as years went by with the Cardinals, the Texas Rangers, and then eventually I got to work uh, baseball for ESPN in 1990, I'd be down at the cage during betting practice with the book under my arm and you know, some broadcasters would walk up and say, Hey man, where'd you get that scorebook? I said, well, I, I designed it and this is the book I use. And they were like, well, how can I get one of those? And I tear out a page and say, here, take it down to your printer. Uh, you know, and then, you know, more guys started telling me, Hey, you ought to sell this. You know, I, I think there'd be a lot of guys out there who might want to use it. So in 1995, I, uh, went through the baseball America directory uh, my wife and my daughter and I had, I had a little brochure printed up about the scorebook, how much it cost and all that. And uh, we sent out a couple hundred brochures to every minor league team we could find. I figured that'd be a great, great way to start. And uh, I was surprised at the number of responses I got back with a check in the mail guys who wanted a scorebook. So that's how it started. And I think I was looking at the history of the scorebook sales the other day. I think I sold 42 that first year uh, that we did it as a mail order business. I, I later had a website that we put put up in 97. And that's when I designed the fan book because uh, a smaller book for fans because in 1998, of course, Mark McGuire, and I was doing the Cardinals, was involved in that crazy home run chase with Sammy Sosa. And a lot of fans wanted to keep score of those games for historical purposes. So this, the fan book came along in 97. And, uh, you know, I've tweaked, I've tweaked the books a little bit here and there over the years, but the basic design is still the same. And uh, I just had a record year this year. We uh, went over 1,300 books sold uh, this year. I, you know, usually sell about 1,150 or 1,200 during year. And this year has been kind of a quantum leap. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of those are the big broadcast books. And then a whole bunch of those, more than half of them, are the smaller fan books. So that, that's kind of how the thing came into being. It was out of necessity, and now it's turned into a fun project where I've sent books all over, of course, the United States. I've sent them to Hawaii and Alaska, a lot to Canada, Europe, Asia. It's been kind of an interesting project over the years, and uh, you know, it's been a fun way to meet some baseball fans all over the country, actually. That's crazy. Um, the, the Europe thing, too, I mean, the Asia makes sense because the baseball's so big over there, but... Europe kind of surprises me, but that's interesting. Well, it's mostly people who, you know, are from America Expats that might and be over there, you know, might be over there working for the military or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll hear, uh, you know, I think I once heard from a cricket fan who said, I want to find out what this game of baseball is all about. <laughs> you know, so he, he wanted a scorebook and I guess he was planning on watching some games. I got to tell you though, Joel, the greatest thing that ever happened. Uh, I was with the Cardinals. It was probably, I don't know, about 2000 or so. And, um, we were, uh, I was in St. Louis for the winter warm up. You know, that's where they have the big fan fest and all that. And, uh, I, I did actually, they had me in a, in one of the rooms off the main ballroom 
doing a seminar on scoring and, you know, just kind of talking baseball and how to score a game. And when we were done, a gentleman walked up with his daughter. I think she was about 12 years old. And he said, hey, Bob, I just wanted to thank you for designing the scorebook. He said, my daughter really loves baseball. And now we sit together at the ballpark or at home watching games, and we score the game in your book. Uh, we'll write down little notes, little personal notes or whatever. And he said, you know, it's it's become kind of a daddy-daughter thing where, you know, we're spending time together. We, you know, we love doing this together. And he said, I just wanted to thank you. And I'm standing there with tears coming out of my eyes. Because, you know, this dad and his daughter are spending time together because of my scorebook, which is something I never expected to hear. And, uh, you know, I've had a couple of those happen uh, over the years. Then I fast forward to about six years later, and the Cardinal Caravan is in Joplin, Missouri, and we're at uh, Missouri Southern University. Well, you know, and I, I do this talk, and, you know, I'm introducing the players. We're doing the whole caravan thing. And this young lady walks up to me and says, do you remember me? And I said, well, you really look familiar. And she was a freshman in college. Uh, she said, I'm from St. Louis. I'm the girl who came up to you years ago when I was a teenager with my dad uh, to tell you that we um, kept score together. And she said, I'm a freshman here at Missouri Southern. I want to get into broadcasting. I want your job someday. And uh, I said, you know, go get it, you know, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, you know, this thing kind of came full circle because she approached me as a college student many years later. And we just had the, you know, the cutest little chat about baseball and broadcasting. And I don't know what she's doing now. That's been quite a number of years ago, but I hope she's working in the business somewhere. But, you know, the thing is, Joel, if you can do something with unexpected results and maybe uh, help somebody or inspire somebody to do something that kind of makes all the hassle of running a small business worthwhile. And believe me, it is, it is kind of a hassle at times running a small business because right before Christmas, I get slammed. I've sold a whole <laughs> bunch of books the last couple of weeks, but I mean, you would not believe what the second half of February, the month of March and the first half of April are like, because I'm getting like 10 to 15 orders a day. And my wife and I send these things out. My daughter helps out. It, it truly is a little mom and pop business. But it's been very fun and very gratifying over the years. And, uh, hey, if that's what people remember about me long after I retire, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, all you wanted to do was keep score on something you didn't have to buy, right. at, buy at Models. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and people ask me, how, you make a lot of money off of this thing? And I'll say, well, it depends upon your definition of a lot. But <clears throat> probably put a couple of daughters through a couple of semesters of college, you know, around – around, yeah, so I said, I'll take that. He's uh, – you know, most people are sitting around worried sick how they're going to put their kids through college. And, uh, you know, this thing's not going to make me a millionaire. But I can tell you that um, I think I think over the gosh, it's been 20 years now, 21 years. Um, I've had over like, I don't know, three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in scorebook sales. Now, a lot of that goes to printing and all that. But it has been kind of a fun project that's actually made some money. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a great thing for fans because I think with everything being so digital and electronic now, it's fun to still see people at the ballpark with their pencil and their eraser sitting there with a scorebook keeping score. Because, uh, you know, uh, and I have people tell me that they'll write little family 
memories in those books based on what day it is. It might be a grandparent's birthday or it might be a dad or a mom's birthday or an anniversary or something. And they write little notes in there and they keep that book and they go back years later and look at it. And I'm like, wow, this thing has taken so many turns that I never even thought about. That's awesome. That's really, I mean, the, the, the societal impact is really cool as, as far as all of that goes. Uh, if, if I can go bigger picture with you too, um, from a broadcasting standpoint, walk me through really broad scope here, the, the, the kind of path that you've taken. Obviously, you've been in the major leagues for a long time, and you've been there with a lot of different teams. Um, what's, uh, what's been your key to, to sustained success at the major league level? Well, I think it's, and you mentioned the number of teams I've been, and you know, several of those I did not leave voluntarily. I'll put it that way. Uh, I, I think the key is, is to be ready for any situation that comes along. In fact, that you know, as you and I were getting on the phone here, and if you want to give me your email address when we're done here, I'll send this memo to you. It's something I worked up a couple, uh, several years ago, and I've added to it. It's a two-page single-space memo to aspiring broadcasters. It addresses what you should do in high school, what you should do in college, what you should do outside of school. If you're interested in play-by-play, you know, go out, record your games, listen back, be real critical of yourself. There's a section on interviewing. There's a section on play-by-play basics. It talks about preparation and pacing. Uh, there's one more thing about some of the, the uh, syllables and words you need to get out of your vocabulary because you would not believe how many times I listen to the radio. And I'm even talking about national guys here and the constant us and ums and, you know, that kind of stuff needs to be thrown out of your vocabulary right now. Anyway, those are all different components of of your question. I I do think, and I also urge people to never, I, I had a guy come up to me at a broadcasting seminar years ago and he said, um, I want to be a golf commentator for CBS. <laughs> you know, I think this guy's like in college. And I said, well, good luck with that. I said, if that's your career goal, I hope you make it. But if you don't, what are you going to do? And it, it made it clear to me that I needed to make clear to young people that you can't keyhole yourself into one thing. Yeah, it's nice to say I grew up in Muncie, Indiana, and I'm a big Cincinnati Reds fan or a big Cleveland Indians fan or Chicago Cubs fan or Cardinal fan. And I'm, I'm going to be their play-by-play guy someday. Hey, that's fine. It's okay to think like that and to dream like that. But you better be ready to do some other things. You better be ready to do some football or some basketball. I grew up on soccer in St. Louis, and I did soccer games for free in college at UMKC in Kansas City. And that led to me getting a professional soccer job with the Tulsa Roughnecks in 1978, which led to me getting on ESPN because there were no soccer announcers in the late seventies and the early eighties, just a few guys with the NASL teams. And most of them were just kind of doing soccer on the side. And uh, that really helped me uh, get into play by play and get noticed at the network level. Soccer opened up a lot of doors for me. Now it's more popular in our country than it's probably ever has been before with MLS. But my point is you have to be prepared to do a lot of different things. And I worked for some companies, ESPN, of course, USA Network. I did boxing for USA. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But the money was pretty good. And by golly, in the early 80s, I needed that money. And I, I learned how to make myself into a boxing announcer, even though I probably in my entire career 
never did more than about 20 boxing events, but it's something I had to do. I've done college wrestling. I've done professional bowling. Uh, for Anheuser-Busch Sports Productions in St. Louis, I did bowling, and I did some rugby matches. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I had, you know, I, I was kind of a quick study, and I was, I was able to kind of get those things going and uh, at least be proficient at those things. And so the point is, be versatile, do as much as you can. If you want to be a sports guy, you may have to do news. My first job out of college was news director at a campus radio station, KASU, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, at Arkansas State University, because a buddy of mine from high school in St. Louis had gone to school there on a baseball scholarship, stayed, and worked at the radio station. They needed a news guy. He called me. That was my first job out of UMKC. It's not what I wanted to do, but it got me on the air and it got me some experience. So all these things kind of rolled together. So yeah, I've been with different teams. Uh, the, my first time around with the Cardinals, I lost the job because the cable network went broke and went off the air. I lost my job, uh, TV job after four years with the Texas Rangers, because unbeknownst to me, a player retired and they had promised him a broadcasting job. My analyst could do some play-by-play, so they slid him over to the play-by-play chair. He was also a former player, and I lost the job because the other guy needed a job. Uh, I worked part-time for the Mets for a couple of years. I knew that was a temporary deal. I worked one year uh, helping out the Minnesota Twins because their play-by-play guy, Ted Robinson, had left to go to the Giants. They needed somebody to come in and do about 50 games. And I was actually going to come back to them in 95. That's when the Cardinals called me and said, hey, Jack Buck's not going to travel anymore. Would you like to come back and do all the road games on TV? And I'm like, hey, that's my hometown here. You know, tell me where to tell me where to sign. So and then the Nationals job, I got let go by ESPN in 2005 after 18 years of doing baseball, basketball, football, reporting, uh, doing some studio work. And um you know, that, that whole thing came to an end with a two-minute phone call from the executive producer, not the way you want to go out. Uh, I needed a full-time job the following year, and the Cardinals job uh, was not going to give me that. And all of a sudden, my agent, who's in New York, called me and said, hey, there's an opening in Washington. And to make a long story short, I'm about to start my 12th year with the Nationals. So, you know, Joel, things happen in this business that you can never anticipate. And I try to tell young broadcasters or aspiring broadcasters, there will be a job that you just know you're the perfect person for that job. You just know it. You can feel it, and it doesn't happen. And then stuff will come out of the blue that you never expected, like the Washington Nationals with me. I never pictured myself in Washington, D.C. And then, boom, all of a sudden you're there, and you got to make friends with a lot of people and make the fans like you in a hurry. So uh, those antis- unanticipated situations come along quite often. And uh, it can be intimidating. It certainly is. But a lot of the time, your career is defined by what you make out of those situations. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people when they, and I just said, you know, right off the top there. So go back to the. <laughs> I had one, I had one of those a minute ago too. And I noticed it. It's right. I never notice it until I tell people not to do it. <laughs> um, and I just did an, um, now we're, we're rolling here. I've got to read the sheet. Yeah. Well, that being said, uh, there's so many, when you get to a major league job, I feel like there is a almost a sigh of relief. Like, I've gotten here, I've gotten to the point where you never want to get complacent in this industry because when you do that, that's when you're dead. But there, sure. there's a, a sense of comfort that you've gotten to a certain level. 
what's it like for you when those jobs have rolled over and being able to keep that positive mindset and that push to continue to find new ones and and get that feeling like you're you're standing on solid ground? Well, nothing hurts worse than losing a job in broadcasting because they're not firing a company. They're not firing a group. They're firing you. It's hard not to take it personally. I mean, that's you out there and you're on the air, you know, you, you have an analyst or you have reporters or whatever and good production people surrounding you if you're in TV, but that's you on the air and that's you that got rejected. I guess the gratifying thing then is you find somebody else who values what you do or what you have done and you take it from there and hopefully another new opportunity comes up because I cannot tell you, man, how many times a door has been shut in my face. And then by the grace of God, and, and I'm, a, I'm a person who has a lot of faith in these sort of things, opportunities do come up. And it's easy to say, well, you know, when uh, something happens to you, another door will open up. It's real easy to tell that to somebody else. But when it happens to you, it's not easy. It's difficult because that's you that has been rejected. On the other hand, when you get a new opportunity, that's you that they're inviting to come and work for their team. And that's a very gratifying thing. And then when you get there, and I, th- I think your thought is a good one. There's, there probably is a moment when you get a kind of heave a sigh of relief and you say to yourself, wow, I'm a big league broadcaster now. What am I going to do with it? I'll never forget a cab ride I took in New York City one time. This is while I had already done some Major League Baseball. But I got plucked right off of Tulsa Cable here in uh, Oklahoma where I was doing college basketball, football, some soccer, a little baseball here and there. And I got an opportunity to go to work for USA Network in New York. They had used me as a freelance soccer guy. Al Trotwig, who was their main guy, who now does Olympic coverage for NBC, he left at that time to go to CBS. He was presented an opportunity. And a gentleman who I will forever be grateful to, who's now retired, his name is Jim Zrake. He was the uh, executive producer at USA Network. He flies me to New York, calls me up to his office. I meet some of the producers. I meet the president of the network, wonderful lady named Kay Koplovitz back at that time. And he tells me, we're going to have you do all of our PGA golf events. You're going to do some tennis. You're going to do the U.S. Open. I got a chance to do the Masters. Uh, they still had some college football and some college basketball at that time. They had the SEC, believe it or not, back in the late 80s because they did not. They were the last league to do a deal with ESPN. So I had this meeting and lunch with these people for a couple hours in New York. And then I'm in the cab going back to LaGuardia to fly home. And I'm sitting in, in this cab looking up at the skyscrapers of New York City. And I'm saying to myself, oh my God, I'm a network announcer. It, it just dawned on me because I'm after this job, which I didn't know if I would get or not, but they came after me. So that was a great feeling, but that just motivated me to work harder. And I got to tell you, Joel, in my days as a network announcer, there's some pressure there and there are producers. You might have, you might do three games in a week. I did three or four basketball games in a week sometimes, or a couple of baseball games a week. You might have a different producer for every one of those shows, and that guy may or may not be a big fan of your work, or that lady might be or might not be a big fan of your work, but they're expecting you to do your very best for them because producers are constantly on audition as well. So there's pressure, 
to prepare correctly and to be ready for every game. And working at the network level really taught me how to prepare in a good way for a lot of games in a short period of time to work at the high level. So, yeah, you can have that reaction. Wow, I'm a big league broadcaster now, or I'm a network announcer now. And I think my first thought was, please, God, don't let me screw this up. <laughs> and my, se- you know, my second thought was, one way to do that is by trying to outwork everybody else at this level. And I think if, if you went back and talked to producers and analysts that I worked with from 1988 to 2005 in my days at ESPN, they would, they might tell you that I wasn't the most talented guy at the network or maybe didn't have the best voice of some of those guys at the network. But I think most of them would tell you that I worked really hard and they appreciated that. You know, you mentioned the, the prep for a lot of, games quickly uh, I guess so to speak what's the secret to doing that and juggling if you've got three or four games in the span of six or seven days uh, somebody was talking about a couple of days ago prepping smarter as you get older in this business uh, exactly how, how'd you do it what's the key to it well well back then I didn't ha- you know we didn't have the internet that's you true you couldn't go- if I had I remember on New Year's Eve one year I had Wake Forest at Utah I mean, Tim Duncan was on the Wake Forest team. Keith Van Horn, Michael Doliak, Andre Miller, they were all playing for Rick Majerus at Utah. This was a big-time game. Well, I got my info from calling coaches, maybe talking to some guys who broadcast the games for those schools. And here's the other thing. I I, I, kind of remember that game because it's the only game I ever worked on New Year's Eve. And it was on at at midnight Eastern time. It was 10 o'clock in Salt Lake City. And I have sitting next to me none other than Clark Kellogg, one of the greatest guys I've ever worked with in this business. And I worked with Dick Vitale and Jimmy Valvano and Larry Conley and Jimmy Dykes and all these other great, great guys. But for some reason, that game always sticks out to me because it was on New Year's Eve. and These two fabulous teams with fabulous players on them and, you know, two great coaches in Dave Odom and Rick Majerus. But we didn't have the Internet. So what I would do... I would, and I gotta, I gotta share a little secret here. I was never real big on sitting on the plane, reading through 50 newspaper clips about players and games and all that, because it came, it kind of came to me at some point when I was doing that, I'm doing all this preparation and I'm not using one fourth of it on the air because when you get to the network level and you're sitting next to Dick Vitale, Guess who's going to have more words on the air than you are? Dick Vitale. And these analysts, they're very chatty in a good way. They know the game. These guys, a lot of them were great players, good coaches. They know the game. They know more about basketball. They'll forget more about basketball than I'll ever know. And I'm thinking, why am I killing myself doing all this stuff when 80% of it, I'm never even going to have a chance to get these stories on the air? And that was a realistic decision I came to. So I decided to concentrate on the game, what players meant what to the game. And I, so I had a routine about a week before a game. I would call the basketball office at Wake Forest, North Carolina, Kansas. I didn't care. I wasn't intimidated by any of these guys. I figured, hey, you know, my network's coming to town. I'm going to talk to these guys, and hopefully they'll cooperate with me. And I made friends with a lot of assistant coaches. I would ask for the assistant coaches, and I would say, just run me through your rotation. Let me know where everybody fits in because any play by play guy, Joel, 
when the third guard comes off the bench, you can say, hey, here comes uh, Mike Jones, a 6'2", 185-pound senior from Indianapolis. And he went to Cathedral High School. Anybody can say that. I'd rather say, here comes their third point guard, Mike Jones, into the game. He's 6'2", but he can really shoot it. He's a great passer with great vision. And I would rather say that when the guy comes in. And that's information I got directly from the coach. And it's something you're not getting by burying yourself in newspaper clippings, too, sometimes. Exactly. Anybody can sit there and read stuff out of the media guide. Now, I might say to the coach, is there anything unique about any of the kids in your starting lineup? Any personal stories that I could relate uh, on the air that our, our listeners might find interesting that wouldn't offend anybody, whatever. And uh, they would give me some nice little tidbits about a kid. They, uh, you know, he, he shoots as well with his left hand as he does with his right hand. So if he's driving the lane, this guy can go either way. And I'll never forget this. Again, this was with Clark Kellogg. We were doing a game at Clemson. I can't remember what other ACC team they were playing, but it was a conference game. And there was this kid who came down the floor and he kind of created his own shot in the corner and he threw up an air ball. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's really not his shot. He's more of a spot up shooter. He's more of a catch and shoot guy. Well, a teammate got the offensive rebound on that shot. The kid who missed the shot circled from the left corner along the baseline over to the right wing And just as I said, he's really more of a catch-and-shoot guy. His teammate threw him the ball. He caught it without a dribble, launched a three, and swished it. And Clark Kellogg went crazy on the air. He said, you've been watching some hoops, Bob Carpenter, you know. And I I said, I I didn't say it on the air, but I smiled to myself and I said, hey, I got lucky there. But that's information I had gotten a week before the game from one of the assistant coaches who said, this guy doesn't create his own shot. He's got to catch and shoot. And I'll be darned if both things didn't happen within five seconds of each other during that game. And one time, it was the first game I ever did on ESPN. Uh, It was the first ever Major League Baseball game on ESPN. It was uh, opening day in Kansas City, 1990. And I was with Norm Hitchkiss, kind of a crazy guy out of Dallas who was a Texas Ranger broadcaster, and they paired us together. And uh, you know, they're playing the Orioles. George Brett is batting. About the last thing you ever expect is George Brett hitting into a double play. But we were talking defense, and I was talking about how the Orioles had such great defensive numbers the year before. And I said, anytime you've got the Ripken brothers playing alongside up the middle, and there's a man at first with one out, you got to be thinking the pitcher's trying to get a double play ball. I swear two seconds later, George Brett hits a one-hopper to Cal. He throws it to Billy over to first for a 6-4-3 double play. And my analyst simply says, nice call, Mr. Carpenter. And those are, you know, Joel, those are moments you don't forget as a broadcaster. And they might, they might slip by fans here and there, but every once in a while you get lucky where the preparation you did that you mentioned on the air will manifest it in the game. Sometimes the timing's immediate, sometimes it's not. But when those things happen, you kind of say, and we were, we went right to commercial from there and Norm's reaching over, slapping me on the back. Hey, that was great. <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but your thought is, you know what? I can do this uh, because I found a way to prepare. And sometimes your instincts just kick in and you expect a double play to happen or a shot to happen. And uh, you know, those are, those are the moments really, and sometimes they don't get noticed, but I think the network people you're working for do notice those things. You know, one more thing, Joel, and this is about interviewing because I get a lot of questions from 
ex-players, and broadcast, you know, professional broadcasters by interviewing. I tell them, if you have the chance, because most of the interviews we do are pretty quick, they're pretty live, and if you can pull the person aside for 10 seconds and say, hey, is there anything interesting about the game today or whatever that I can ask you about, what, what would that be? You might, get, you might get something to work with, you might not. In 1988, I was doing one of my last golf tournaments with uh, USA Network before I moved to ESPN. I was at the World Series of Golf in Akron, Ohio. Curtis Strange came off the 18th tee. I'm working with the CBS crew. I'm the only guy from USA Network on that crew. And I would interview the guys as they came off 18, and then I would throw it back up to the tower where Jim Nance and uh, Ken Venturi were up there. And so Curtis Strange comes off. He had a pretty good round. And I said, hey, Curtis, anything about your round today that, uh, you know, that I can bring up that you'd like to talk about? He said, well, I broke my putter because I got pissed off. I said, really? <laughs> and then all of a sudden the producer's like, hey, you guys are on in 10 seconds. So I have in my mind, Curtis Strange intentionally broke his putter, okay? So we get into the interview. I ask him about his round. And then my second question is, I said, Curtis, you told me a minute ago that you, out of frustration, you broke your putter. and you threw it in the trash can by, by the, the tee box at the next hole. I said, you can tell us about that. But I said, I'm interested. What did you putt with the rest of the round? Did you putt with, uh, he said, well, I putted with my pitching wedge. And I said, well, why would you putt with your pitching wedge rather than a flat club, like a one iron or a two iron or something like that? And Curtis Strange looked at me on national TV and said, you know, Bob, that's a really good question. And then he went on, you know, then he went on and answered that, you know, that pitching wedge, he lifted the blade off the ground a little bit, hit the top of the golf ball so he could have overspin to get the ball to the hole. I had never heard anything like that before. And I had played some golf because my first reaction was, why wouldn't you putt, you know, with a club that had a flat head on it, yeah, it like and a to putter. have a, and you know, to have a great golfer, look at you on national TV and say, you know what, Bob, that's a really good question. That just made my day. And the CBS guys really liked it too. So when it comes to interviewing, if you have a chance to chat with that person for 10 seconds before you go on the air, you might be able to find out something that'll make that a great interview rather than just a standard interview. I want to ask you about two moments in particular uh, that you've been on the call for uh, both are baseball. Uh, one of them I'll start more recently the the Max Scherzer perfect game that got broken up with the Jose Tabla <laughs> uh, hit by pitch. Yeah, he leans into a changeup <laughs> yeah. with two outs and two strikes in the ninth inning. Walk me through what it's like broadcasting that moment because I, I have to imagine in the back of your head there's already two strikes, there's two outs. You're thinking, or, or were you? What were you thinking at the moment in terms of how you're going to encapsulate this when he gets the perfect game, and then how do you stay in the moment enough to to have what's really a pretty good straight line call of a moment that ruined history for lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, it's hard to explain because I think a lot of it comes from experience and from, you know, the repetition of doing this hundreds and, and now for me uh, thousands of times, because I don't, I'm not one of those guys who counts how many games I've done in my career. I couldn't tell you. I, I I'm not even sure I could estimate, but, you just, your experience kicks in. The main thing you have to do is you got to keep calm. You can't be all jittery and sitting there and going crazy on the air and saying stupid stuff. 
you have have to let the game breathe. And I think the best compliments I ever get from people, and I learned this in 1987. I was with the Rangers. We were in Milwaukee on Easter Sunday. The Brewers had won their first 11 games of the season. Nobody starts a season 11 or no anymore, but they did. And the Rangers went in to the bottom of the ninth, leading four to two. Rob Deere hit a home run. And then Dale Swaim, who would later manage the Cubs, coach for a bunch of big league teams, he hit a home run to right field. That was a walk-off homer for them in front of a full stadium of 50,000 people on Easter Sunday in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They were not televising because back then, home, home teams didn't televise much. And so I think my simple call went something like this. You know, Dale Swaim swings. There's a long one to right. And I took a pause, and as the ball disappeared into the stands, I simply said, that's 12 in a row. I laid out. The stadium went crazy. Our director, Dave Burchett, did a great job of cutting from shot to shot, players jumping all over each other, crowd celebrating, stadium going crazy. And it was probably a minute or more before I came back on and said anything, and we just let the moment play. That was in 1987. Joel, this past year, of course, was 2016. So that happened 29 years ago. This year was the 30th anniversary of that happening. I think they won 13 games before they finally lost one. They, so they won one more game after I made that call. I st whenever I go to Milwaukee, I still have people come up to me and say, hey, you were on the losing end, end of that, and we appreciate the way you put a professional call on that because some announcers – Oh my gosh, there's a long fly ball to right. You know, we're going to lose, you know, who, whatever they would say, which would be a stupid thing to do. But I still have people stop me. In fact, they interviewed me about it because they're doing a special on it this year. And uh, they're going to include my call in that special. And that's pretty gratifying because I was the visiting announcer. So anyway, my point is some of the greatest moments you ever accomplish might be those moments when you say a few things and then shut up. And so that, I, I try to be a bit of a minimalist when these moments come up. I want to put a good call when the last out is made on that, like I think I did with Jordan Zimmerman's no-hitter a couple of years ago on the last play of the season, Max Scherzer's no-hitter, uh, the first one, and then the second one when he almost threw the perfect game. And, I mean, that was – well, actually, that was his first no-hitter with the Nationals. Uh, the top of the game. Then he had one later in that season at New York before the season ended. So I think what you have to do, you have to stay calm. And I have an analyst next to me who's very chattery, uh, very chatty and very jittery during situations like that. F.B. Santangelo, he's a high energy guy. He's an ex player and he really has a hard time staying calm during those situations. And so I gotta, I gotta make sure I keep him calm and keep myself calm. And I think that's the key to handling situations like that. And obviously, you're on the verge of a perfect game. The guy leans into a pitch. There were a bunch of replays, and FP made a great point. He said, he did that on purpose. Nobody should do that. No major league player should. That's like bunting with two outs in the ninth inning to try to break up a no-hitter. Among the players, that's considered a no-no. So he shouldn't have done what he did. And then Max gets the next out. And I think I said something like, last weekend in Milwaukee, Max was unhittable. Today in Washington, he was almost perfect. I, th I'm, I think that was what my call was, something like that. 
And uh, I think that was a good way to put it because his previous start in Milwaukee the previous weekend, he threw like a one-hitter. He had a no-hitter going into the seventh inning. So, um, you know, you take those moments, you call on your experience, and hopefully you stay calm during the whole thing. Take me back to 1998 was the other moment I wanted to ask you about. Um, and and Big Mac and what that chase was like and what it was like putting a bow on it. <laughs> well, it was fun. I actually didn't get to call number 62, which was the record-breaking home run because Fox took the game that night and uh, took it away from our local telecast in St. Louis. So Joe Buck actually had the call of number 62, but I called just about the rest of them. Uh, I do remember 60 and 61 where he was approaching uh, Roger Maris's record. And I think when he hit 61, it was a laser shot down the left field line that was real close to being foul. He hit it so hard it didn't have – this is what Ozzie Smith used to say. He hit it so hard it didn't have time to go foul. And uh, that's what happened on that home run. And I think – I said, there's a drive to left. Is it fair? Well, then, boom, the ball, bounce, the ball smacks off the glass of the stadium club. I said, there's number 61, and uh, I said, and now Mark McGuire stands alone with Roger Maris. So, uh, you know, pretty good straightforward call, little historical perspective in there. And then I shut up, and I let the stadium do its thing again, and I I didn't overkill the situation. Uh, Fast forward to about three weeks later, it's the last day of the season, and I got to call number 69 and called number 70, Here's the odd thing. Mark McGuire's at-bats were the only thing I called that day because I was uh, not on local TV with the Cardinals. That game was on cable that day. I was doing the -the over-the-air games. But ESPN sent Ray Knight and me to St. Louis to only call Mark McGuire's at-bats. And I think he batted four times that day. In fact, uh, I'm looking at an old framed scorecard uh, that I have here from that day. So McGuire singled his first time up, hit a home run his second time up, number 69. He walked his third time up, and then he hit a three-run homer in the seventh inning for number 70. And because the Cardinals won the game 6-3 to three over Montreal, that's the last time he would bat that day. So Ray Knight and I called four at-bats the whole day. And uh, that was how I called 69 and 70. And I'll never forget that. But that, I, I will. I do work? remember a cool moment. We were in Pittsburgh, and I think Mark was in the fifties, and he and Sammy Sosa were real close. They were the they were within a home run or two of each other. And this is the first year ever that I used a laptop during the game because I was just on the major league scoreboard and I wanted to track Sammy Sosa's at bats. And we were in Pittsburgh, and McGuire was coming up to the plate, and I think I said something like. Sammy Sosa just hit number 55 in Chicago. Mark was sitting on 55, and I said, McGuire wouldn't hit number 56 right after that, would he? On the first pitch, he hits it out of Three River Stadium for a home run. You know, another one of those moments where you just say something that's pertinent, and you get lucky, and then it becomes more than pertinent. It becomes pretty good stuff. And, uh, you know, those, those are the moments I remember from that year, because Mark... It was like traveling with a rock star, Joel. They were sneaking him in and out of hotels through the kitchen, through the, he was going up and down the freight elevators and all that kind of stuff. 
And uh, it was it was like traveling with Elvis Presley or the Beatles. It was unbelievable. And uh, those are some of the things I'll never forget from 98. How does it work calling forward bats? Well, ESPN <laughs> was covering all kind of different games that day. So every time McGuire came up, there would be about, I don't know, a one-minute pad or a 90-second pad before he came up when the rest of the network that might have been on three or four different games would join us in St. Louis. you know. And I, I would just say we welcome all of our viewers who have been watching all the important games here on the last day of the season pertinent to who's going to make the playoffs. I, and I would say here in St. Louis, the Cubs are already in the playoffs. The Cardinals have been eliminated, but we've got history to witness if Mark McGuire can keep doing what he's been doing the whole season. So obviously the first time up, he gets a base hit. We recap the play. They show a replay. The network leaves us. And then Ray and I sit there for a couple of more innings, just chatting and watching the game. You know, I, I'm, I know there's history at stake here, so I'm keeping score in my book of the game. I'm scoring it like I'm announcing the game. And I did all the regular preparation with stats and everything for that book like I was doing the game. And I have a copy of it in, in a box frame here in my office with a baseball signed by Mark McGuire, a ball cap signed by Mark, a couple other things that he signed. And he also signed my scorebook and put 69.70 in my book. And, you know, I don't know how much that's worth now that all the other stuff is shaken out about that situation. But, uh, you know, it's a memento for me because I was there and I got to call those two home runs. So that's what would happen every time Mark got ready to come up. The entire network would join us. Obviously, the second time up, he hit a home run. So they stayed they stayed with us for two or three minutes while we showed umpteen Julian replays. And then we'd cut away. They'd go off to the games and they'd come back. We did that four times that day. And I, I looked at Ray Knight and I said, man, this is the easiest money I've ever made in my career. I'm calling four at bats. And he's like, I'm right there with you, brother. This is fun. And it sure is easy. So that was a fun way for Ray and I uh, to end that season. And now 18 years later, you know, we work together on the Nationals telecast because he's our studio guy, and he does some of the games with me here and there. So, uh, you know, crazy things, Joel, that you never anticipate would happen. Some, I, I must be one of those guys who's awfully lucky to get ending up in, in some of those situations where you literally are in the right place at the right time. I have two more questions, if that's okay, and, uh, and then yeah. I'll let you go. Uh, the first one being, I'm curious your perspective because of how close you were to it, but you mentioned the, the fallout of what happened after 1998, and as a broadcaster, you're obviously around it all the time. You know Mark on a different kind of level, but what's your take, uh, especially being a baseball guy still now to this day and, and being in the game, What, uh, how people should view that uh, season, what lens they should view it through, and how it has kind of been changed as the years have gone by? Well, it's a good question, and... This is my stock answer, and I don't want anybody to think it's a cop-out, but I firmly believe that every Major League Baseball fan has to make up his or her mind about how they want to view that situation. All I can tell you is, since then, I've seen Mark on numerous times. First, uh, he would come back to St. Louis for reunions and stuff like that. He came back the weekend they closed Bush Stadium in 2005 before they moved into the new ballpark. And we had a chance to visit. He was great. He was gracious. By that time, he and his wife had started a family, had a couple little kids. 
uh, <clears throat> later I would run into Mark as hitting coach of the Dodgers. Now I run into him as hitting coach of the Padres. He's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, always very gracious. I have a charity golf tournament. He never turns me down if I ask him to sign something for the tournament, a ball. I even had a buddy of mine gave me a Mark McGuire first baseman's mitt that I took to San Diego and got signed for him this past summer. And, you know, so we, we talk about baseball. We talk about family because I'm always, you know, his son Matt was a big part of that thing. And, you know, gosh, Matt's like 30 years old now. And we laugh about what age our kids were during that time and uh, how things are like now. But Mark and I never talk about that aspect of what happened in 1998. I'm not going to ask him about it. If he ever says to me, hey, uh, you know, you're around the game, what do people say about that or whatever, I'll give him an honest answer. But Mark has never asked me about that, and we've never discussed it. It's, it's the thing we just don't discuss. And if that's fine with him, that's fine with me. I, I consider him a friend. I'm not going to toss him out of my friendship circle because he might have done something that people don't like. He's still my friend. But uh, that's the way I look at it, Joel. I think every fan has to make up their mind on how they want to view the situation with Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero, Roger Clemens, other guys who've been identified as users, to use that term. And I think that's something each and every fan is going to have to decide for themselves. I appreciate you answering that because I, I was hesitant of how exactly to word that. Um, but I'm, I was curious no, just how, how, you, how you handle that, too, as a broadcaster on, on air because it's obviously it's the elephant um, in the room. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and this was just when I was doing some Google searching, I had found the, the freestyle that you had done on the air going into commercial, I don't know, I think a couple of years ago. And I know that uh, you're known a little bit for being able to have a good time and have some fun and kind of bring that, that levity to a broadcast as well. And I, I was curious, just your point of view of how you, how you make things fun. Because at the end of the day, it's sports, and you want to be dialed into the game so much. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll work with analysts sometimes that want to be about the game, and that's true. But how you are able to, and what your approach is, to make it more of that, uh, you know, I don't want to say barzy, but like you know, you're sitting in the yeah. game watching it, watching with somebody at a bar. Um, you're to, having a good time to create that fun attitude to it. Well, I think some things go into that because when I was at ESPN, I never became a star there. I I got frustrated at times because they didn't give me some of the big games I thought I deserved. But I did find a niche there because when they when they when they broke in new people, guess who their play by play guy was. Bob Carpenter. And I've got a wonderful list of guys, and some of them come up to me and remind me, in baseball, guys whose, whose first games were with me uh, included guys like Buck Martinez, Tommy Hutton, Oral Hershiser, Jeff Brantley, uh, Frank Viola, who didn't end up making a career out of broadcasting. But I worked with all these unbelievable people and, and I, I'm the guy who kind of broke them in. So that became my niche. And I, I guess I just had an affinity, Joel, for being able to work with different people and different personalities. Because I can tell you, man, working with Buck Martinez was a lot different than working with Joe Morgan. Because <laughs> Joe was kind of serious. You know, Joe didn't have a lot of laughs during the telecast and all that. It was, it was hard to loosen Joe up. I, I think I managed to do that a few times. 
in the maybe 10 or 15 games I ever did with him. But there were guys like Buck, who's probably my all-time favorite, who just showed up to the ballpark in a good mood. He was happy, glad to be there, wanted to do a great job. And uh, he was fantastic. As we're, I mean, Oral Hershiser was like working with a professor. But Oral had a great sense of humor, too. And uh, every time I see him in, in L.A., he still throws his arms around me and says, hey, this is the guy who broke me in. you know. And I still remember him and I sitting in the lobby of the Marriott in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, sitting in front of the fire one night, the night before his first big league game, and talking about it and having a great time. Those are memories. you know. And in basketball, I worked with, as I mentioned, I, I broke in Bigger Phelps. I broke in Jimmy Dykes at the network level. He became such a great analyst. There were other guys like Dick Vitale, Bill Raftery, and Larry Conley who were there before I was. But they did give me a lot of the ice to break in. And I think having fun and having humor is a part of that. You know, I, I, I think I'm pretty serious about what I do, but I really like to be myself and have a great time. And I think maybe, Joel, that's the big thing. Be yourself. And uh, when a fan walks up to me, we had our fan fest in D.C. last week. And when a fan walks up to me and says, hey, you sound exactly the same talking to me here as you do on the air. I, I consider that a compliment yeah. because a lot of guys, they'll become a different person when they put the headset on and all that. And I try to be real in everything I do. And I consider that a compliment. So, yeah, we have fun. And sometimes I'll have fun at the expense of a player. And I'll say something and I'm like, oh, geez, where did that come from? Here's a case in point. Because you, when you said going to commercial and we were having fun and laughing about something, it reminded me of this situation. We had a guy in Washington about four years ago named uh, Jerry Hairston. He was the older brother of Scott Hairston, uh, two big league brothers who, who played you know, quite a bit of their careers in the big leagues at the same time. Well, we had Jerry Hairston on our team. You know, and he would admit this. He's kind of a pretty boy. He knew where the cameras were. And uh, you know, he was very cooperative with the media. In fact, he's done some work with the Dodgers uh, on TV out there since he retired. Well, we traded him to Milwaukee at the trading deadline. And um, he was quoted as saying he really welcomed the trade because he really looked forward to getting out of Washington, D.C. And as you know, in Washington, as you may know, we have three airports, Baltimore, Dulles, and Reagan, Okay. And I don't know where this came from, but as we went to break, FP mentioned, yeah, Jerry Hairston said he can't wait to get out of D.C. And as, as, the, as the producers counting me down from about five to four to three to two, I simply say, well, he doesn't want to be here. He's got three airports to choose from. And FP went crazy laughing as we went to break and the whole truck just broke up. And I am thinking, Oh my gosh, I just busted this guy's chops on the air, but everybody, but everybody thought it was so funny. It became a, a, a thing, you know? And so, you know, once in a while that happens, I try never to rip a player or to make fun of a player uh, because those guys are doing something I'm never capable of doing. But uh, you know what, if you're going to do 170 games counting spring training, and you got to keep it fresh every night. You better have a sense of humor, or you're going to put people to sleep by the 1st of May. That is Bob Carpenter, our guest here on Play by Playcast this week. A lot of different interesting things in there. Uh, and, and one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is trying to pull, if it's only one or two things from each interview that we bring you every week, that you can implement into 
how you approach this business, how you approach this craft. If you can pull one or two, that's fantastic. And, you know, Matt Park a couple of weeks ago talked about when he keeps his running basketball score, which I've always done, he would circle a three. Something as silly and as small as that, I started doing it, and it's unbelievable how much it helps you. Now I X out twos, I circle threes, and one la- uh, one slash is a free throw. So I can really quickly look at my running score sheet and see how many threes you took without having to fiddle with the stats monitor and all that stuff. And it's just simple things like that. One of the things that Bob talked about that I thought was interesting was that he always tries to talk to an assistant coach before he did basketball games uh, or does basketball games. And we had Alabama State, or we have, I'm recording this before we play them on Thursday night. The game will have happened since this podcast comes out. Um, But Ball State playing Alabama State in basketball. It's a SWAC school. There's not a lot of information to begin with. But reached out to one of their assistant coaches and quite simply said, because I talk to the head coach for every team we play, if it's an ESPN3 game, uh, if it's a radio game, less. But if it's an ESPN3 game, try to get both sides a little bit more completely. Uh, So I'll talk to the head coach anyway. But talk to an assistant coach to break down something on every single guy on the roster. So that when Amir Warnock checks in for Alabama State, I have more than he's a 6'9", 250-pound junior out of Atlanta. I can also tell you that he's a great rebounder because he takes up space, isn't a huge jumper, but it's just really physical. Will box you out, will take up his ground around the bucket. And I can do that on all, for them, 13 guys that will see the floor. And it's something little, it's something small. Uh, the task will be interesting to, to see not overusing it, but uh, I, I kind of liked doing it, and I feel maybe more prepared than any other game I've been. Um, it was a 15-minute phone call. Just got one nugget on every kid to talk about what they're working on or what they're doing or, or something personal about them that is beyond uh, the pale of what you would read in the newspaper. Uh, so I'll try to keep that up. We'll see how it goes for, for TV games that I do, and uh, I, I imagine it's going to be uh, uber-helpful. So I'm glad that I was able to, to pry that out of, out of Bob's uh, mind over this conversation. That being said, uh, we are all out of time. This is our last episode before the holiday season. So uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, Happy Festivus, Festivus for the rest of us. Uh, whatever you are celebrating this time of year, enjoy the time with your families, enjoy the broadcasts, enjoy the bowl games that you're at, whatever you've got coming up over the next course of the week. Um, enjoy it, and we will see you back here next Friday for our first ever hockey edition of Play by Playcast. We'll see how that goes because I don't know a lot about hockey, so it's it's going to be it'll be more of an exploratory uh, adventure for me in terms of broadcasting hockey. But hopefully, uh, everybody else will get something out of it as well. So uh, many thanks to Bob Carpenter. Many thanks to all of you for clicking download or subscribe. Telling a friend if you enjoy the podcast retweeting us if you enjoy the podcast anything like that that helps spread the word about play by Playcast, and we look forward uh, to your listenership again seven days from now merry christmas happy holidays happy hanukkah i'm jewish i probably should have led with that happy hanukkah uh enjoy it and we will talk to you next week this is play by playcast and we're out